Welcome to the Smart City Podcast, the technology program that looks at how buildings, communities, and cities are becoming smarter, more efficient, and more connected. We look at everything from the big ideas to drilling down to individual projects and innovative ideas that impact your day-to-day life. The Smart City Podcast is brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. Welcome to episode number 32, recorded on January 5th, 2022. This week, we're going to speak with Alan Bonner, an expert in crisis management, a media trainer, and a proponent of something called Safer Cities. He's worked all over the world trying to get cities prepared for disaster. This was a fascinating interview, and we'll get to Alan right after we talk to Grant as he does his news. All right, it's 2022, and uh, Grant is here with his first news report of the year. What do you got? Um, I, I got, um, I think, a, a wide vary of, of news that I think would be fun to talk about as, you know, we get into our session today on um, safer cities and so on. But nice to have some some different things to talk about. But, you know, before we move to my other subjects, let's talk about uh, smart cities because I read an interesting article or a few articles, actually, I've been reading about recently on the um, how smart cities are losing their luster. And I think what I mean by that, Alan, is um, I don't know if you know, but people like Toyota just broke ground on its, uh, and I mean Toyota Motor Company, Woven City, which is built from scratch. It's a futuristic urban city uh, on 175 acres. It's going to, this plan is robots, data, computers, the whole thing. You know, we hear all about it a few of these places in the Middle East and so on. And what's happening, though, is I'm all, you're at the same time, you read about cities who just don't get there. They build, uh, they build a city. Okay, for example, mm-hmm. they built a city in Songo, uh, Songdo, I mean, in South Korea. Um, and guess what? They couldn't fill it. It's a ghost Can, town now. They couldn't fill it with people. So, there's, so, there's, so, yeah. There's a, a bunch of Chinese cities like that. You well, know, you know, that's been forever. Okay, um, that's a bit different. I'll tell you why. But you're right. When you, when I drive, when I fly into China, um, into near Shanghai, I then go north. I go to uh, Wuxi, and along the highway, you'll see tens of tens of rows of empty buildings, brand new. But th- that is not a smart city. That's a construction problem, right? Mm-hmm. So these places were designed with all the infrastructure. Like they have, they have 19 smart cities in China, maybe 25 now. But all the infrastructure, maybe a hot 500 million to 25 billion in infrastructure put in, and they don't work. Or halfway through, because of financial problems, they don't get completed. And and so I am, by the way, telling you that this is the feeling. Uh, to a lot of people, okay, and 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 in my viewpoint is, I don't agree. By the way, what I agree is that you don't need to build smart cities; you make smart cities that you already have. So I think that we're spending too much time trying to build utopia instead of building in what we have now. And can you I, could, can, yeah, go ahead, Alan. So, can I ahead. can I ask why? If you know the Koreans are pretty smart, you know, yep. especially when it comes to technology. So if they built these cities. Why yep. couldn't they fill them? They couldn't get the people to go there. Um, 
they could not fill its buildings and it became a ghost town. Hmm. Now, th- th- I can't tell you why, by the way, but they're, they're a utopia, right? And, you know, you know, Abu Dhabi, they're building uh, Mazdar and then there's other ones being built. But the point being is um, we spend like we're talking tens of billions of dollars. OK, Alan, um, do you know that Neom, which is the woven city? OK, that budget is five hundred billion dollars. OK, and it's going to be in Saudi Arabia and it's going to be the master city of the world. You know, you could talk everything you can think of. Smart cars, smart people, robots, transportation, smart buildings, communications, the whole thing. Space, helicopters, all that. But what about Toronto? What about (laughs) Vancouver, L.A., New York? Like, we're spending so much time that we keep forgetting, and maybe we're not. I don't know. Um, Why don't we spend time? You can make, you, you know, you can make a city smart. With no technology. Okay, well, you can make it right. I mean, in, in theory. By the way, I'm a technology Allen guy, Allen. But do you understand my point? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You can just use your your existing infrastructure, innovation, what, yeah, and yeah. and just figure out better ways of of deploying the resources that you have. Absolutely, and I think that's so. I do understand it's losing its luster, but I think. The smart utopia city is losing its luster, not smart city. So I just wanted to, to talk about that a bit. And I think it's very important. We can also throw in the sidewalk labs project that, you know, crashed and burned into Toronto. Yeah. So what? Yeah. Hmm. So um, you're right. Well, let's make things smart. Like, like for example, all you brought up sidewalk labs. Well, you know, Tridel have the Bayside Village there, which, you know, we were part of that project, but it's now six or five or six buildings in a completely wired network uh, with uh, all the things you do in a smart community. And it, and, and what we do, we built it within the parameters of the development rather than trying to build a new city. And I think maybe we got to learn from that. I don't know. So okay. that's a uh, okay. good point. Uh, second one is, uh, well, I'm going to get into my favorite subject, uh, artificial robots. intelligence. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought yeah, we yeah, well, same thing, same thing, same thing. And by the way, I'll be releasing my um, my video through the company on our first robot uh, next next week. So well, I'll talk about that later. Artificial okay. intelligence. I think you'd Here's love this, Alan. Artificial intelligence. Okay. Okay. Is now getting into comedy. Okay. Oh. So there's an experiment <laughs> built as a comedy app called John the Robot, uh-huh. and um, it was. Uh, uh, a brainchild of a professor at the School of Mechanical Industrial and Manufacturing Engineering at Oregon State University. But essentially, it's this tiny android uh, that performs with a handler uh, who okay. has a mic and presses the button and tells the same jokes in the same order, like a, like a normal veteran comic. Okay. Right. And then what happens is the robot learns what's funny and what's not funny. And get this, based on the crowd and how they laugh, it can better tell better jokes that are funny. I wonder. <laughs> can you I imagine wonder- being a comedian that you're lost on stage? You go, this ain't working. <laughs> oh, uh, you get it? No, no. Yeah. I, this is cool. Like you could create laughter all the time at an comedy show. I wonder how <laughs> that robot would deal with hecklers. 
I, I would, uh, by the way, I don't know, but I mean, and you can look it up and read about it. Um, I'm not trying to make it uh, that I'm an expert at it and how it deal with things. I'm just reading about it and okay. um, it diagnosed everything. So probably it would understand a left a heckler. It'd probably say, be able to actually comment based just like when you drive your car and all of a sudden Google Assistant says you swear, they tell you not to swear. It learns after time to react. And mm-hmm. I bet you it knows when to react religiously properly, okay? Which, you know, it would know how to relax, answer every question that's funny, but yet socially acceptable. So, right. anyhow, I think it's pretty cool. Um, and, um, and so going to the world of, you know, I talk a lot about, and you, I think you agree with me, that people always say that, uh, the world's going to end. And I always say the world's never going to end. Earth will always be here. Um, we may end because we just live on earth. And if we don't get our act together, we may be extinct. The earth ain't going anywhere. Been around mm-hmm. 40, 50 million years. I don't think it's going anywhere, but have you heard about the Marine skull they just found? Um, um go, you do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, so, I, so scientists found a, um, a, an incredible um, dinosaur, we'll say, age of the dinosaurs. Um, now, when I say that, when I say age, um, this is why I want the listeners to listen. So it's a, what it is, it's called the Symbos, Symbos Pandaculus algorithm, algorithm. And what it is, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, a water. So a, uh, uh, it's a cross of a, uh, I guess a uh, uh, an eel and a whale, and mm. it is um, uh, from the ichthyosaur the Asaur stage, and it's two hundred forty six. Get this, two hundred forty six million years old, and so you know how big it was. Um, they said it lived in the oceans for about one hundred fifty million years and dominated. Okay, so it was a mixture, like I said, like. Uh, dolphins and uh, flippers and and just you know it was um, ranged around between six and thirteen feet long, and um, some of the bigger ones got as far as twenty meters, um, uh, which is sixty five feet. Okay, that's, that's healthy. That's but but I think that um, I guess two things tell me is like Earth's been here forever. Um, we are going to develop things to make Earth better and grow. It's called adaptation. Remember, this marine reptile dominated the oceans, this types, for 150 million years. Not 150 million years ago only, for 150. Man's been around for like 40,000 years if you go back to, you know, the, uh, um, before even we became Homo sapiens. But, but my point is, um, Earth's going to be here forever. Um, and, and this is just another example of many things will die, and these reptiles died. And I can tell you, there was nothing for them later on to feed on. They were so big in the water. So they died off. Everything was smaller and so on. And, and again, but Earth didn't die off. And I, and I think that's kind of what I'm trying to uh, no, the planet, will, the planet will always be here. This, this rock that's going around the sun until the sun finally explodes in 5 billion years. It's what will be walking around or swimming under the waters of, of, of this rock. And uh, if we're not careful, we're going to end up uh, like your, your 200 and 
know, your old dinosaur. Yeah, but and think of the desire for a leaf. It lasted 150 million yeah. years. Yeah, we've been only we've only only been farming for like 12 or 14,000 years. You got it, Alan. So my point is, people, they adapted for 150 million years. We want to adapt or be idiots, that's up to us. Alan Bonner heads up Alan Bonner Communications Management, a company that deals in crisis management, disaster preparedness, media training, and more. He's worked on five continents, worked on waterfront projects in both Vancouver and Halifax, and was a staff executive assistant and consultant to Mel Lastman when he was mayor of Toronto. He's also written a number of books that cover a concept he calls safer cities. He spoke to us from his Toronto office. So, Alan, that sounds awfully weird um, coming from me because it's like I'm interviewing myself. Um, to, first, let's begin with you uh, introducing yourself and explaining what exactly it is that you do. Well, I'm a, a broken down ex-journalist who uh, worked his way through grad school um, in uh, local and network radio and television in Canada and the U.S. And as I went about my business, um, found that most of the people I interviewed were either um, unknowledgeable or sounded guilty of something. And I wasn't sure what it really was that was making them so nervous. And I was a late bloomer, so it wasn't until my late 20s that I realized most of them weren't guilty or stupid. They were just nervous. They didn't know intuitively how long five minutes was on a radio morning show or a 10-second clip on all news radio or how many sentences they'd get in a print interview. So I went into the media training business. 18 months later, the um, Exxon Valdez oil spill happened. And uh, that got me into the crisis management business, and that's where I've been ever since. And you might say, well, what on earth does that have to do with safer cities? Well, um, I did a lot of work in cities on five continents. My father was in real estate development, responsible for an attempt to revamp the Vancouver waterfront and then a successful attempt at the Halifax waterfront and changed a, a lot of the skylines in, in North American cities. As an employee, not a developer, what a shame. Leo Kolber apparently got $100 million to help Sam Bronfman sell Fairview shopping centers. And I sort of said to my father, couldn't you have stayed in for just one crummy million? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, you know, I just been interested in all this for my whole career. And I did urban planning. I did crisis management and have tried to put those, uh, those disciplines together into a book called Safer Cities of the Future, another one called Cyber City Safe, and one coming out called Emergency with an exclamation mark on the end. And that's all the horrible things that happened during the pandemic. So uh, I don't know whether that's a succinct uh, uh, intro or whether it would um, cause the person on the other side of the bar to walk away mid-intro, uh, mid but that's it. It's not a career that you actually train for. It's one of these things that sort of just evolve over over time, yes? Well, it, it starts with not training. That That's the best uh, discipline in radio, and I don't have to tell you that. Um, uh, the summer that I graduated from high school, I had a roommate who kept talking about radio, radio, radio all summer long, and I had no idea what radio had to do with going to university. But when I arrived, there was a campus radio station, and I went to visit him, and not knowing what was going to become of me, the Scarlett O'Hara question, uh, <laughs> all of a sudden I saw it. There it was, music, writing, talking, more talking, uh, friends, a social network. And 
the air of respectability. And Alan, you'd know what I mean. It's not actual <laughs> respectability. It no. is the air of respectability. You can get an interview with the premier and so on. But then I learned on the job. My wife jokes that I graduated from UNB with a degree in English and political science and an unofficial uh, community college degree in radio, and then did study crisis management and did study urban planning. So some things you can study, but in my time, there were very few places to study uh, the broadcasting arts or journalism or what have you. You just did it at minimum wage. I want to talk about crisis management uh, for just a second. This is a fairly recent thing in the sense that it's uh, it's only really been a calling for, what, maybe 30, 35 years for some people? Well, you know, you might you might even date it. Uh, I think your guess is a very good guess, but you might even date it to the first graduating class at Leicester University in the UK. Uh, in and I was think I think it was in the second one because that was the first university in the world to offer full graduate programs in risk, crisis, and disaster management. When I when I tried to find a program, believe it or not, in in the mid nineties. Um, and I know I sound too young to have been an adult in the mid-90s. Stop. I'm sure there's no time for that. Um, but I found there was one course at Georgetown University in the engineering department in uh, UBC. There was something in landscape architecture, meaning, you know, berms and trees could be places where people get mugged. But there really was no good, full, dedicated program into managing such things as as the Exxon Valdez oil spill or Hong Kong's return to China or uh, criminal wrongdoing, workplace, uh, uh, you know, wrongdoing and so on. So that's that's one place you might uh, date it to. You might date the, the related field of risk communication to the late 70s, early 80s with Sandman, Fishoff, Cavello, Tversky, and some other early academics like that. But then you have to forgive the muddying the waters, you have to stop the clock after 9-11 because 9-11 caused uh, so much homeland security money to go into terrorism that America ignored normal weather events such as the uh, hurricanes and tornadoes and the evacuation of Houston and New Orleans and biodefense. I mean, why are we in a pandemic? Is because only 20% of the money dedicated to biodefense ever got to biodefense. It was diverted into other things. So we've had kind of a push-me-pull-you approach to the history of crisis management. And at the city level, the urban emergency plan was normally written by the the, uh, deputy fire chief. And then in came some people with other skills, such as retired police officers, retired military, and then some people with these uh, dedicated programs from community college, anything from you know, a year to to a master's degree in it. So, so the the expertise is asymmetrical. Uh, you cannot go to an urban emergency planner in city A and find that that person has a similar approach to city B. It's what's called interoperability, not not only in equipment but in terminology. I mean, even the ten code. You know, just from from hanging around bars and the occasional cop, you know, 10-4 means yes, and what's your 10-20 means where are you? Um, that 10 code is different in different cities. And can you imagine the difficulty that that would cause? Uh, weapons of mass destruction is called a hand grenade in some cities, and in others it's, uh, you know, chemical weapons. But that's, but Al, but Al isn't that, because everything is at the local level and they determine what they want to call it, and they're really reacting. There's no... 
there's no real plan in place. Being an owner of a former owner of nightclubs and so on, and being through that type of crisis, and then you look at, well, we look at what happened yesterday. Okay, um, we all probably watched what happened in the Beltway, where um, the crises of all these cars um, were jammed up for over a day, and people were left with babies in the cars. There was nobody to answer, not even the defense uh, or whoever handles crisis. I don't know. You would know that at the government level. But the fact is, they had nothing in place. They had no way of getting these people anywhere other than people were tracking in the snow back to their cars. So. So, I mean, why would that be? And, and, and is that probably the status that we're facing in most cities? Well, it's what you call yo-yo time. You're on your own. Uh, the government isn't going to help and isn't going to fix it. And I saw the same footage you saw, that there were many uh, buildings. I don't know whether they were uh, highways departments, buildings full of sand and salt or, or what they were, but there were buildings within walkable distance of the highway. and. Um, uh, it, it is, um, you know, incorrigible. It is. Um, well, wait a minute. That's actually what you just said. You, you said something there because I didn't know that. By the way, Alan, you you must be you must watch these things and look at them very differently than the average person. Um, because when you say there is, I know what you're talking about the salt buildings and the highway buildings. So I guess two things are coming to mind. You can't do much plowing if the cars are in the way. But I guess if you had applications that directed people to these buildings or to safety, to heat, to whatever. I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff around because um, you brought up something that I didn't even notice. All right. Well, let me throw something back. You can do some plowing on the side of the road. Good um, point. <laughs> and, and you can you can move cars over if the cars are still operational. Uh, and by the way, I, I think I have some expertise in this area. I drove between Moose Jaw and Regina uh, twice a day for a better part of four years, including in, as Alan would know, the kind of prairie snowstorms. By the way, it, it only snows about an inch a year in Saskatchewan. It's just that it keeps blowing up and falling back down hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of times. Um, so, yeah, you can get the cars off into the side of the road. You can plow. You could have refuges, those barriers between uh, neighborhoods and and the highway have uh, gaps in them so people can get through. There could be signage and there could be approaches, uh, but there aren't. The other thing there could be, which I've long advocated, is mobile gasoline distribution. I mean, we, when you get people burning up their gasoline, and by the way, in an old carburetor, you would suck in the the um, crystals Cheers. in the air and it, and, and it would freeze and, you know, uh, your car stops. You, you sh we should have mobile gas trucks that go up and down and fill people up, uh, you know, for money. You could take a credit card right on the side of the road there. They could be deployed in shopping centers when there's an evacuation. We don't have anything. Now, uh, to, go, to go back to some your earlier um, uh, diatribe, uh, the approach in cities is asymmetrical. We are required by law to write, uh, by provincial statute, to write an emergency plan. It is required to be checked every year and tested every year. They are not. They are out of date. They are not competent. Uh, only one plan out of 100 that I've read in the entire world mentions the word pandemic. Maybe two or three mention public transit. I mean, they are not wow. competent they, plans, and I'm sorry. Ones. And, and, um, no big disrespect for the people who who uh, who write them, 
But I think the provinces should take that function over if the city's incapable of doing it. And I hear what you're saying about the local level of government, but I do not subscribe to the notion that local government is the best capable of dealing with uh, such monumental things as emergency planning. I don't, I don't believe it. Well, I'm happy to name names. Um, Kansas City has a pet plan that not only enumerates how many wild pets there are, how many domestic pets there are, it has an evacuation plan that I believe states how many people are expected to be downtown in the tourist season versus not the tourist season. It also has... um, a thing called Plan Bulldozer, which is an inventory of all the heavy equipment that's around, you know, plows and rakes and shovels and what have you. Now, that is a half-decent plan. Uh, Sacramento lists uh, how much rainfall will disable their um, their, their uh, public transit. So there are some plans with some very specifics in there. But if you can believe Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I have some affinity for Halifax, having lived in Shubenacadie and Black Point and my father having revamped the waterfront, in their plan, Alan, you will be flummoxed, outraged, and chagrined to hear that their plan calls for the overtaking of uh, media and the uh, dictation of what media will broadcast during an emergency. Now, what? this is contrary. No, 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 right. Wait, wait, wait. What? Well, so, so they, 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 they this, take- is, they, this is like marriage. You heard me. <laughs> oh. Now, well, the, the, I, the, this is contrary oh, wait, to I'm the- I'm not surprised. It's contrary to the Broadcasting Act. It's contrary to law. It's contrary to the CRTC regulations. It's ridiculous. Secondly, both Halifax and I think it's Albuquerque um, mandate the forced either billeting or, in Halifax's case, uh, carpooling with people. So you can imagine a police officer stops you and says, so, excuse me there, would you, would you please put this disheveled uh, man who doesn't have any ID and he's all covered in mud, just fell down a hill, put him in the back seat of your car and drive him out of danger. Would you mind doing that? Yes, I would mind doing that. Sorry. I mean, and, and can you imagine the police officer knocking on your door and saying, would you please put this person up for a couple of nights? I don't think he's one of the people who escaped from jail, but I'm not entirely sure. But he looks like a good enough guy to me. I mean, writing up these things is insane. Barry, Ontario, you, you said don't mention names. I'm happy to mention names. Barry, Ontario had in its official plan, the, the site of a tornado a while back, that, uh, that all you have to do is call up HRDC, an old ministry called the Human Resources Development something, HRDC Canada, and they will provide workers to help clear up the snow and the sun and the other, or fallen trees or what have you. So I call 1-800-O-Canada, which is another story. That's a useless number. They, they require you to tell what program you're asking about. I said, I want to find out how to find these workers to come to Barry in case, uh, if need be. So I get the transferred to the deputy minister's office in Hull and then the regional office in Toronto. And uh, it turns out this is absolute made-up nonsense. HRDC does not provide hourly workers. Uh, to clear up uh, snow and uh, uh, fallen trees and what have you. And I used to work for a mayor. I used to be executive assistant to the world's longest-serving big city mayor. You may have heard of him, Mayor Mel Lastman in North York. And I said to these people, if 
my mayor had told me to find workers who were going to help clear up this mess from this emergency. And two days later, I came back and said, well, they said they don't actually do it. You do it. There would be hell to pay. There will be uh, lawsuits. It is astounding what gibberish is written into urban emergency plans. Yeah, but I don't get it. Um, you're telling me that if you were to call out the government, call it what you want, municipal government, provincial government, federal government, and said, show me your disaster plan. They may have one, but it'd be, or maybe they won't have one. You tell me that, Alan, but, but they would have one and it'd be in pieces and people would be like half mouth open, like our pandemic plan. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, some plans are better than others. I've, I've referenced some good ones. Uh, I think it's Oakville. It might be Oshawa. Others tell you what to keep in the 72-hour kit. Let, let, me, let me just talk a, a, about that. It's, I mean, some of these people are very well-meaning people. You know, it's like marriage. No, Nobody gets married in order to have a fight or, or, or to get a divorce or to have an argument over ketchup. But, you know, that sort of stuff happens. Um the 72-hour the, the kit, you, you've heard this. We're, we're supposed to keep 72 hours worth of supplies. You know what? Get, guess how much uh, water for three people would weigh. Water for three people weighs 75 pounds. Now, you two husky gentlemen, uh, how far <laughs> can you carry 75 pounds, may I ask? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty fit, but I don't want to do that. No, no, but my wife would be carrying it, so it's okay. <laughs> get, get, guess how many detailed, you know, detailed plans there are in city urban emergency plans? Maybe three or four. Are they any good? They're not good. There is a grand total of one. I've added them up and it comes to one. It's an average of one. It's a total of one. It's one per week. It's one in all of history. Academic article on what to put in these 72-hour kits. And guess what? It says, don't carry water. Don't carry cans. Don't carry anything that's heavy. All you want to do is to be able to survive for maybe three days, and that is hardtack uh, or something really light because you end up with so much you can't carry it. So, look, you know, we are in, uh, like the pandemic, we are in kind of the Stone Age when it comes to really planning for these things. The Japanese aren't. Uh, they do serious evacuations of entire neighborhoods. They have, uh, and Portland has it too, a, a shaking room so you can see what it's like in an earthquake. I mean, there are some uh, areas that, that try to uh, be prepared, but um, not very many and not in North America. Okay, let's get really idealistic here. What is a safer city as the term defined by you? Well, I, I mean, I, I hate to use the British expression silly bugger, but I'm going to play silly bugger with you and say, well, what on earth is a city? Because there are different definitions of cities by population in different parts of the world. As few as 200 people constitute a city in some Scandinavian countries, and as many as hundreds of thousands do not constitute a city in China because they don't count fishing villages and lumber camps and what have you. But let's say we are speaking of cities in the vernacular and we kind of all know what a city is. In the global north, uh, meaning the, what used to be called the developed world, I would say less pollution, less time commuting, the use of uh, AI and big da data, which I know you folks are interested in, to make a, a safer and better city, green space, recreation, what have you. In the global south, Something as simple as toilets. There's one toilet for every 500 
rear ends in Mumbai, and you need a, a better ratio than that. Um, less crime, safety for women. By the way, when you put in toilets, you sometimes make women less safe because when they go to the toilet, that can be a place where they are attacked. The fastest growing urban area is the mega slum with millions of people in it, sometimes archipelagos of, of millions. And we've got to uh, do something about that in my view. So a safer city means different things, whether you're in the developed or the undeveloped world. Let me give you one quick example of transport. I've worked in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, and a very interesting place. By the way, they banned smoking with legislation. There are cages on the medians in downtown streets where you must go in there in a cage. You can smoke, get your shoes shine, read a newspaper, but you may not smoke on the street. And it achieved the, uh, the end result. It used to take three days to go from the Sudan border down to Nairobi, during which time you would be attacked and the produce would spoil. And there were a lot of problems with slow transport like that. Part of their sustainable development goals was to build a railroad going west and the road going north to Sudan. They cut the travel down to 10 hours. People are not attacked on the road. Produce arrives fresh and palatable. And that is uh, another element of safety, uh, which is proper transport. If you pull transport into the so-called developed world, take uh, the much um, lauded Toronto, where we're all living, the greater Toronto area, um, we don't use commuter ferries. Uh, they do in Sydney, Australia. They move 10% of their uh, transit riders by commuter ferries, and I've been on them, and sometimes the waterways are so narrow they have to back up and go forward and, you know, shunt around like that, but they do move people. It's slower. It can be disabled because of bad weather, but we are shutting down many of our transit systems in Toronto, uh, the Queen Street car the, for the downtown relief line, et cetera, when we could have put in a backup uh, commuter ferry system. We could also use uh, ski gondolas, cable cars. I kind of dig them in, in New York, in Barcelona, in uh, London. Uh, there are these ski hill style uh, cars. I can imagine those being used all over the place, uh, over uh, even Wascana Lake in Regina or the, the rivers in Edmonton and Calgary in Fredericton or the Don Valley in Toronto. I also think they're kind of interesting urban sculpture. They may not make the place appreciably safer, but more transit, more redundant transport is a good thing, but so is good-looking urban sculpture. Now, I've spoken for so long, I forget what the question is, but I hope that was a comprehensive answer. No, it's, it's a good one. And, you know, I'll throw in another one here, the, the escalator, the mid-levels escalator in Hong Kong. I mean, it's a very simple sort of thing, but it gets people to and from where they have Japan, to go. Japan, Japan. Yeah. They do and, that and a lot. The, funicular railroad in hong kong and in yeah, quebec city yeah, i yeah. mean they're all they're all good fun i i missed that escalator i was working that day but i had my kids with me and they went to a, a theme park in hong kong on uh, uh and that escalator it's a single escalator it goes yeah, up yeah. one way and then goes it reverses the other direction depending on the time of day but but let's go back to the um to the um this the, the city application for uh like are we talking about safe cities um, because those things we just talked about is not, it is safety, but are we talk more about how we secure problems in case of emergency or just safety as a whole? I uh, get in my car, I can't be attacked. Get on a bus, I can't be attacked. Um, 
go shopping, um, go boating, and I you know what happens if my boat overturns. Alan, uh, what are you saying as far as safe cities? Like we we look at them in two ways, right? Safe city could be a smart city with cyber and all that stuff, which is you know more my background. But what are you saying? Well, I, I'm saying everything. Um, okay, and, okay. And, and I'm saying it uh, lucidly, presciently, um, and uh, panoptically. So, for example, many aspects of a safer city are simply their own reward. If if we figure out a way to pollute less with better public transit and better uh, net zero uh, construction of buildings, less pollution is its own reward. You, you are in a, a more pleasant city. Yeah. But have you, have you heard the statistic that more people have died from air pollution during the pandemic than died from the pandemic? I mean, you, you know, people talk about, oh, I don't want to put that vaccine in my body. Well, look at the air pollution you are putting in your body. So sometimes something as simple as net zero lead, bream construction, uh, big data creating green waves of, of traffic that go through the city more smoothly, facial recognition, which... Uh, could have identified maybe a terrorist who was going to drive a, a rental van along a, a, a sidewalk in, in North York a while back. Um, all these things make for a smoother, better, a seamless city, but ultimately they are also emergency preparedness as well. If you can't get the emergency uh, vehicles to the site of the emergency because your roadways are all chewed up and you know, uh, are, are impassable, uh, in normal times because of traffic, you've created a very serious problem in, in an emergency. So I think it's all of one piece, if I may yeah. say. Okay. And see, see I, I see with technology, um, the, you brought emergency, and that's where I think technology has come about. Because look, um, look at the things in, in the UK. They have emergency robots that actually fly into reservoirs and to remote areas that helicopters and trucks can't get to. They are now going to have um, emergency vehicles that can land in two areas. And that's where technology, I think, plays a big part on the emergency side and getting people out. So mobility plays a big part in emergency. I agree. And, and we saw that in Houston. We saw it in New Orleans. We have seen it in Fort McMurray, where I've worked regularly. And boy, are we ever lucky that that worked. Can you imagine uh, doing a computer model or an engineer, engineering model? Uh, that causes tens of thousands of people to decide to go the wrong way on a divided highway spontaneously, and and nobody's killed. Wow, yeah, yeah, lucky, yeah, lucky. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. we we got a plan for these things. We have to succeed on purpose, not by accident. So, are are you invited in by cities to help them with their emergency preparedness plans? Uh, sometimes, but it is um, it is not with the open arms of the emergency planner, who I've now written my third book denouncing. Uh, you know, that's, uh, they are, con <laughs> as one, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I, I will not use this person's name, but he said, look, here's what we do. We take a binder that has a crest on it. We do some edits in there and we put a new crest and a new date on it and give it back to the city and nobody reads it and everybody's happy. I mean, that's really what happens. Yeah. It's, it sits on the shelf until something happens. And then they they expect that to be a manual. No, to get out of the and, and no one in. takes ownership. <laughs> no, no one takes ownership of it. Right. No. I, well, I, I have heard, I won't say what city, but I've been told by, I think it was a former mayor who said, I was in a blackout. We were in city hall in darkness. The fire chief, the emergency planner and the mayor were screaming at, at each other about who was in charge. Screaming. 
mid, middle of middle of the uh, you know it's, <laughs> see oh yeah no no that's what I would expect and and so so it brings us to the big one um, we've seen a lot of failed uh, initiatives and and I'm not afraid to say it by cities uh, municipalities who uh, people don't have an invested interest in what happens and and creates a value to the city that's just the way it works okay. So would you would you say that uh, a lot of it's going to have to come from the direction of the citizens and private business, private corporations? Well, uh, it's got to come from a couple of sources. Uh, private businesses' uh, business is to innovate and to create products that uh, people need or want. And sometimes those are two vastly different things. So business should get on with doing business. Um, politicians live in a, a two to four to five year cycle. And uh, that's simply life in a democracy. Um, the bureaucracy uh, kind of wants to keep their head down, and that's somewhat understandable. I think citizens and residents should walk up to their mayor at the New Year's levy or the open house or city council meeting and say, where should we go if there's an emergency? Well, where is that? Is that a shopping center? Is it a, is it, is it a, um, a recreation center out of town? Is there any food there? Is there any gasoline there? Do you have any services, medical there? They will not have an answer to this, but but residents should demand this. Absolutely. Secondly, I think that the province should demand that that the um, cities update their plans and test them as they're required to by statute, but which they don't. And it's uh, really a shame. You know, so, I, remember, I remember growing up in Winnipeg, and if you looked in the phone book, there were evacu- emergency evacuation routes. Right. And it, it, it told you where to go in the event of something awful. And this, of course, was during the Cold War. So it was really, you know, if the nukes start flying to Grand Forks Air Force Base, uh, this is what we're supposed to do. I remember that very clearly. But did we get into practice? Did we get um, distracted? Did we get complacent? What happened? Well, I think we do get distracted and complacent. I mean, uh, we do that around our homes. Does anybody, does everybody listening to this uh, program have spare keys for the car, have extra food in it, have uh, extra uh, clothing or, or candles in the in the trunk of the car? Uh, do, do the kids have their ID on them when they, when they go to school? I mean, we all are a little lax at this. The problem that I have with the public officials who are paid is that they're paid not to be lax. We parents are not paid to be parents, and yet we fall down on the job even in parenting. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of laxes. Let me riff on Winnipeg a bit because that's actually a pretty good story. Not only do they have those disaster routes, but I think they have pre-designated transit routes. This is the route that the bus will run even if it's a winter storm. If we can probably do it. So you're, it's kind of predictable. Secondly, Duff's Ditch in Winnipeg is one of the great public uh, uh, programs of all time. Uh, Duff Roblin, uh, the, the premier of the day, built a spillway around Winnipeg. And uh, there were also some berms and things put around cities. And it works. It was prescient and it works. And the fresh water supply from, isn't it, uh, Lake of the Woods? Yes. Uh, the fresh water supply into Winnipeg, gravity-fed, 130 miles, feeds Winnipeg and a spur line to Brandon and still has excess capacity, and that was one of the things that worked. There's one in Toronto, honorable mention to Toronto, of course, center of the universe. Uh, the uh, Danforth Bridge, when it was built, 
was built with the capacity to put a subway underneath it, and the subway wasn't installed for 50 years. So sometimes there is thinking ahead. Very often, there's no thinking, not even in the present. Like the subway that they started to build in L.A. and shut down by the car companies. <laughs> there was that, and then the, there was the Eglinton subway that they started to build in the early 1990s, and then Bob Ray had it filled in. Yeah, filled it in. By the way, L.A. was the city that was built by uh, by transit. It had hundreds Absolutely. of miles of, of rail Absolutely. and did have, did have good subways. And uh, all you got to do uh, for your research is watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and you've yep. got that, uh, that yep. case. Yeah, yeah. Um, Final question. Uh, do you see the pandemic uh, possibly spurring people to action going forward? Well, I hope so. But, you know, look, we, we had the, the Spanish flu, we had the swine flu, we had the Hong Kong flu, we had the bird flu, we had SARS, and it didn't really spur us to action other than to buy supplies and then throw them out. Uh, shocking statistic, there are 500,000 procurement officers in the United States of America, state, local, and federal level. They obviously did not procure the right things, nor did we in Canada. Uh, what I'm hoping is, and people are entitled to react in their own way, I'm hoping that people get really mad, you know, because there are some simple solutions to these issues of stockpiling things and so on, and they're done in other parts of the world. And I hope that it is a wake-up call. I, I think Elon Musk has brought a lot of his supply chain into America because he was, you know, his batteries were corroding in the in the uh, moisture of Thailand. So th there are a lot of case studies that show we can do better. And uh, yet I am surprised and astounded that we're still not doing a lot of commerce from the uh, sidewalks in this country. Uh, you go to Europe and you have a steak frite on a corner in Paris and you think you're in heaven and you try looking for a place to have a steak frite. Uh, and, I, and I don't just mean in Winnipeg in the winter. I mean in, you know, uh, a habitable climate in uh, in the spring or the summer, you can't find it. I I don't know why. Why don't why didn't we erect one of those tennis bubbles or a sprung greenhouse on every park and every schoolyard in all of the country, so that at least at the end of the pandemic we had that public facility that could be used for tennis or ball hockey or whatever. Yeah, well, look at how imagine look at the money we spent on the infrastructure. Of the pandemic, I don't mean infrastructure as far as physical locations, but everything we gave to everybody. And I wonder if we could have done well. Who's, who knows? But but from my standpoint, Alan, um, I changed a lot during the pandemic. I've always been obviously an environmentalist and a uh, sustainability guy, but I think I uh, want to see more accountability. And I think a lot of people do. And but I didn't see it at the polls last election. Well, uh, it remains to be seen. If if all governments did poorly, are you going to punish every government that was in office at the time? And would the new people do better? I don't know. That's going to be a yeah, very interesting topic. But I can tell you one thing. we Surely we know that paying people to erect a, a greenhouse or a sports bubble or a, a sidewalk cafe is way better than paying them to stay home. Thank you so much. This has been very illuminating and just a little bit scary. Now I, 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 I'm going to wonder what's going to happen the next time we have a blackout or a heavy rainstorm. Well, I'd like to get back on next time and talk about cybersecurity. Um, I think this is oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, no, and 
And for all your listeners who uh, chuckled when I uh, made a humorous remark, uh, thank you. For those who didn't, I forgive them. And um, uh, Emergency is the name of the book that will okay. create, a, create a reckoning, I hope. I hope it creates a reckoning. And Alan, where do, we, where do they get your books? Well, uh, it, it's in the design stage right now. It's going to press soon. Uh, best thing to do is pre-order on my website, alan at alanbonner.com is the email. alanbonner.com is the website. And just so everybody knows, I'm not always trying to sell something. There's a lot of uh, you know free downloads and information on there about safety. I'm evangelical about that topic. So uh, root around, see, see what's there and see if anything's useful. Happy to be of help. Well, very good. And let's hope that you're not tilting at windmills because, uh, well, we don't need any further disruptions in our lives. Indeed. Thank you, folks. And that's it for this edition of the Smart City Podcast. Upcoming programs will feature more smart people and their ideas for connecting us together through smart technologies. If you have any questions or comments, send them to feedback at thesmartcity.blog. If you want our website, it's thesmartcity.blog. The Smart City Podcast is brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. Executive producer is Grant Furlane. Technical productions by Rob Johnston. Executive assistant is Andrea Crawford. I'm Alan Cross, and we'll see you next time.